0: Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone. Welcome back to psych talk. I am super excited for you to join me for today's episode. I have a very special guest with me, someone that we've gotten close pretty quick via Instagram. So I'm super excited to have Dr. McKenna Herford on. She's a licensed psychologist. So Dr. Mack, thank you so much for being here.
1: I am so excited to be here to talk about one of my favorite topics. I've been a guest many times and this one I've been actually giddy about.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So before we dive in, can you
1: introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Sure. So as you mentioned, my name fully is Dr. McKenna Herford, but I go by Dr. Mac on Instagram. And I have worked in a variety of settings as with most psychologists I went to school for 10,300 years. And I've worked in medical settings, VA hospitals, university hospitals, corrections, worked in community health organizations, college students, and now currently in private practice in a group practice setting.
0: That's awesome. And you, you look great for being in grad school for 1030 years or whatever you
1: just said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad my appearance does not reflect how dead I feel inside. <laughs>
0: This is going to be a great episode just from the first couple of minutes of our conversation. Um so you have clearly worked in a variety of settings like you just said. Um what is your clinical population or populations of interest now?
1: That is such a tough question for me to answer because I've dabbled in a lot of things. So it usually we can boil it down to two different overarching themes, I guess. So one is any cultural identities that people are wanting to explore. Recently, the one that has been more relevant, I think partly because my clients are in Austin has been non So that's been an identity that people have been wanting to explore. Most of my clients currently are queer. And so that's been current in general, love exploring that with people as they feel comfortable. Also, Complex populations. And whenever there's difficulty figuring out what exactly is going on, or there are multiple factors Mm -hmm. at play, that's the big one. What I've been known for is whenever people don't know what to do or they don't know what's going on, I usually take on that person or highly stigmatized populations, which I'm sure we'll get into answering Mm -hmm. some of the questions. I usually gravitate toward those populations. And so I kind of summarize myself sort of like Dr. House in the <laughs> sense that <laughs> I have caveats to this. <laughs> so in the sense that he had like that, I have recently rewatched the whole thing. So we had that clinic where they're trying to figure out what's going on with the person and anything could come in the door, but it was usually a lot going on and difficult to kind of tease apart. So that's how I view myself, but I stay in my lane, my very narrow lane. And also I'm allergic to bikes. We don't have to worry about me having a bike. In. <laughs> that summarizes it, I think.
0: Thank you for those distinctions between you and Doctor House. <laughs> That's great. So um, today we are going to be talking about multiple diagnoses and everything goes that goes along with that. So individuals who hold multiple diagnoses are often labeled up as "quote complex patients." So can you describe for listeners what a complex patient is? And then I want to know your thoughts on labeling individuals
1: as a complex patient. Okay. Based on the look on your face, I feel like you think that I'll have a strong response to this, which I do. I do. Before I dive into that piece. Yes. When we talk about multiple, multiple diagnoses at play, so it's not uncommon for people to have multiple mental health diagnoses. For example, anxiety and depression like to hang out together pretty commonly. If we think about ADHD and autism, for example, ADHD and OCD, mental health things that pop up like major oppressive disorder, and then maybe also a substance use disorder. Substance use disorder is really kind of They like to play with everyone as far as mental health diagnoses go (laughs) and thinking about like eating disorders. As we've talked about, Mm -hmm. there are usually multiple things going on. And so it could be mental health things, multiple things going on there. It also could be substance use, the role that that's potentially playing in what's going on or any kind of long term effects. Also medical diagnoses. And if that is potentially playing a role as well, because I, I think still unintentionally we view those as very separate, but there are so many physical conditions that we can have medically speaking that either indirectly or directly can affect our mental health. So there are a lot of different ways, but basically looking at multiple different diagnoses. So the label part, how do I feel about that? Um, I usually try to say complex presentations. The 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 other, number one, everyone is complex. Like if we think about humans in general, we're obviously more complex than an amoeba or even a pet that we have. So I don't really know what exactly that tells me unless you're talking to another therapist and then we may have an idea. Also, what I've noticed is that when I use the term complex presentations, I'm referring to... Very broadly, what I just talked about, Mm -hmm. what I've noticed that maybe it's just the people I run into, they'll use it to refer specifically to cluster B personality disorders as almost a euphemism, like a nicer way of saying, I don't want to work with this client and it's difficult working with them. So instead of saying difficult patients, we're now saying complex patients. And all we did was change the word, but really the underlying reaction that we're having is the same. And so that's kind of my reaction. So I'm fine with saying complex presentations and things like that. But I found that I've had to clarify multiple times, even throughout training, what exactly I'm referring to. Yeah, of course, I want to see cluster B personality disorders. And for listeners, probably the biggest one that's being discussed recently because of a really big court case is borderline personality disorder. That's kind of the big one. Of course, I want to work with that but I'm zooming out quite a bit more than Mm -hmm. a lot of clinicians are whenever I talk about that. So those are kind of my initial reactions.
0: No, I love it. And I love that you brought up medical diagnoses. Obviously I'm biased because I work in a hospital. Um, But a lot of people, and this is, you kind of answered this, but I'm still going to ask my next question. But like, I think like you just touched on multiple diagnoses with regard to mental health. They think of like multiple mental health Diagnoses. Um, And I love that you said complex presentation. You are speaking very broadly, but a lot of people think cluster B because what I was going to ask you next, but I still want to have a discussion about it, even though you kind of answered already, was you know, a lot of mental health diagnoses are comorbid with one another. Like you said, like Mm -hmm. anxiety and depression, we think about that. And so my perception, and it seems like yours too, when people say like multiple diagnoses, we're not thinking, Oh, the people that have comorbid anxiety, depression, typically Um, we are thinking of other types of patients. So you just mentioned cluster B, but are there other patient populations that come to mind either that you work with, or when you are describing your patients that you work with um, that are complex presentation to use your language? Or do you think more broadly speaking, there are um, certain complex presentations that people tend to jump to, even though there can be a variety of multiple diagnoses. I hope that all made sense.
1: <laughs> it did. No. Yes. And, and actually there are two other groups, I guess that people will gravitate toward. And I then also have to clarify. So one is quote, serious mental illness. I have my own reactions to that as well. So for example, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, people equate, basically people seem to equate complex with severe, which is not necessarily the case in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is dual diagnosis, substance use with mental health concerns. And so, yeah, there's this quick, we think that substance use is separate from mental health, even though that doesn't make any sense. And it's also in our DSM, literally like, with all the other things that doesn't make any sense. And, and yeah, there seems to be this quick equation of, instead of saying severe, we're now saying complex. Uh, So I'm like, okay, yeah, you changed the label, but I'm still getting the same tone. And I don't know how I feel about that.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I love that you just brought it up because I think that's the general, I don't know the word I'm looking for um, public opinion i yeah. received like people think complex patients are severe mental illness or individuals with severe mental illness, which I guess in my mind, similar to yours, like complex to me means like either many different diagnoses or like puzzle pieces that we're trying to put things mm-hmm. together. And like somebody can have schizophrenia, for example, and that be their only diagnosis. And it's actually very clear cut and yeah. not complex the definition of how I think of what complex means.
1: A hundred percent. I'm questioning, have we looked in a dictionary to look at what complex means? I'm very, I'm very confused. It's like when people in STEM love you guys, by the way, but when they complain about how complex the research is because they have to control for multiple things, I'm like, okay, come to social sciences and then talk to me because we have to control for multiple things because it's complex, not severe. (laughs) So yeah, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know where that just immediate reaction comes to mind. And also to your point too, you can have borderline personality disorder and schizophrenia alone, and also you can have them and they're managed well. Mm -hmm. So that's the other piece as, as well that we just don't consider. But yeah, you're right. I never hear that when we're talking about major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder together. It's always these highly stigmatized groups that we tend to have a lot of negative reactions toward or biases that we haven't kept in check. Mm -hmm.
0: And as, as you were just talking, I wonder if people like people in the general public think like complex seems like a quote unquote kinder term than severe. And that's why we've moved away. But to your point, like it doesn't mean the same thing. However we feel about the label of severe mental illness, like severe and complex don't mean the same thing.
1: No, no. And then also, where does that leave room for people like you mentioned? Obviously, you work in a hospital. So what if it's not necessarily severe and it's still difficult to disentangle medical stuff and then mental health Mm -hmm. related things? Plus, there could be like environmental things going on or systemic barriers. So Is that not considered complex? Because in my mind, that would, I mean, legit fall under that definition.
0: Oh, no, definitely. I'm I'm thinking of a patient that comes to mind right now that I'm not going to give the details of because it would sure be very very specific and easily identifiable. But like I would label this individual as a complex patient and with the correct treatment, they were discharged from the hospital actually relatively quickly but there were still a lot of unanswered questions that none of us really felt good about, but like medically speaking, they were doing fine and the treatment was working. So we're like, okay, we're going to continue to address this in follow-up because there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And that's what I think of as more complex.
1: Yes. 100%. A hundred percent. Agreed. Yeah. I'm thinking of, I'm not a neuropsychologist, but in my internship in the VA, we did, the neuropsychologist was so busy that we would do some assessments to give them some information to go off of yeah. to see, is this an appropriate referral? And I'm thinking of one again, it's very specific, so I don't want to give too much away, but essentially there was, it was an older gentleman who Fell, potentially had a traumatic brain injury, also potentially had like an alcohol-induced type of cognitive impairment, also had a like UTI, which in older adults can develop, can cause some unusual types of symptoms. There were a bunch of factors at play, and so it was significant in that instance interfering with daily life pretty suddenly and the fact that it was legitimately hard to disentangle what the fuck is going on here. How do we and thankfully that wasn't my job. I did not envy the neuropsychologist, but that's what they're trained to do. But even me trying to help give them at least a good starting point or a jump start and how to evaluate that in of itself was challenged because there are also medical stuff going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh definitely definitely. So it sounds like you and I kind of have the same Thought process about what it. Of course, course we do. (laughs) Of course, (laughs) this is why we became friends so quickly, (laughs) because we think very similarly. Um, So, kind of leading into my next question, and I'm sure this could like be the whole podcast episode, but we'll try to hone it in. What are the challenges uh, for patients who meet criteria for multiple diagnoses when it comes to both treatment as well as functioning? And I know this is really dependent on what the diagnoses are but of course broadly
1: speaking yeah. yeah so one i think the biggest piece is trying to be heard by providers i could be medical providers and mental health providers if there're potentially some medical things at play feeling heard and people are receptive to that and wanting to get them help so even getting to The point where they get some diagnostic clarity Mm -hmm. takes a lot because they may be communicating with a physician and a mental health provider, or there could be a mental health provider and a psychiatrist, and there could be a lot to disentangle. They also could legitimately be in a lot of the agencies that we have now that we just don't have the time based on our stupid insurance structure and these strained systems that we have now to really devote to that. And so that can be super frustrating to try to figure out okay, well, first of all, what is going on here? Because then that's going to help me understand the treatment, everyone understand what the treatment should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, if there are multiple things going on, they may or may not compound to affect functioning. Like Mm -hmm. it kind of depends. Um, If we think about the medical piece and the mental health piece, those feed into each other and can create a cycle, for example. So maybe the mental health stuff gets worse. And so that exacerbates medical stuff, which then exacerbates mental health stuff Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so it can be really challenging. On top of that, discernment I think is really challenging. So when you have multiple things going on, it can be helpful and challenging for clients to know which one's the culprit. You know, if I'm thinking for me, obviously, you know, probably your listeners don't, I am the complex patient on the medical side of things. So So when I'm thinking there are usually three main culprits for what is causing the medical stuff, but they overlap quite a bit, just like mental health issues do. And so it takes a lot of like training in a sense, like a lot of exploration, being able to identify like, all right, which one of you troublemakers again, I'm thinking of the triplets from brave though. They've been on my mind. I don't know why. And so trying to figure out like, all right, which one of you, which one of you caused this shit? Um, And so I think that part can be the the case with mental health things too, is for example, if you have ADHD and generalized anxiety disorder, and so procrastination is a key piece to both of those. The question is, well, what is driving the procrastination? Is it being worried about what the outcome might be that maybe we'd see more in the anxiety realm? Is it I cannot corral my brain to do all these tasks together and figure out how to do them in order to actually complete the task that we'd see more in ADHD and then related anxiety because we're freaking out. We're not doing the task. So that discernment piece can be really beneficial and also incredibly challenging, Mm -hmm. particularly without therapy to really understand whatever the multiple diagnoses are at play, being able to identify when that particular one is causing an issue or when they both are and potentially are feeding into each other, because then that can inform you about whatever treatment is coming into play that can help either your prescriber or potentially a therapist and giving you the appropriate skills for whatever's going on.
0: So Mm -hmm. I hope that
1: answered the question.
0: Oh, oh, it definitely did. I have so many thoughts. I'm going to start like at what you just said and move backwards. Okay. (laughs) that's how no, but when you're talking about like the discernment, like one thing and you know, this, and the listeners know this, I work with a lot of eating disorder patients. And one thing that comes up a lot is eating disorders, especially restrictive eating disorders, like anorexia and OCD like behaviors. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, the individual may have had anxiety before the, uh, eating disorder developed, but not necessarily like OCD. But then as their eating disorder got stronger, they have developed obsessions and compulsions. And they typically tend to be around like food, body image exercise. So then it's like, is this a true OCD or is it the eating disorder? And then a lot of times our answer is we have to wait (laughs) until the eating disorder is more in recovery. um, and the person has the tools and to see if those obsessions and compulsions then go elsewhere or did they? but then it's like, historically they did have anxiety. So did they actually have OCD that wasn't caught and like, and it's just, so yes. it's a
1: puzzle piece. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, same thing. Right. So if we think about a combination of medical and mental health things, I'm thinking first thing that comes to mind is thyroid disorders, obviously anything related to our hormones, Obviously indirectly, if we're experiencing medical issues that can cause distress, but in this case, they can directly cause mental health issues. So Mm -hmm. if we are not producing enough thyroid, that can cause us to kind of maybe feel more depressed. And then the opposite is true. We may feel on edge or more anxious, things like that, if we're producing too much. Mm -hmm. And so if we're trying to disentangle how much of this is like a separate organic, anxiety or depression piece versus how much of this is the medical piece. The first thing that we should be doing is regardless is we need to get the medical stuff addressed yes. first to see, to see how much of, I mean, number one, that would be a quicker fix as well. And then also that can help us then kind of figure out, okay, what is, what is left over here? What can we work with? And that helps us further tease it apart. But yeah, hundred percent. That's why I know we talked about this, about eating disorders, but I briefly worked in an outpatient clinic with adults and I really did not understand before working in that, how complex it is, Mm -hmm. how much of it is like so many different factors could be playing a role. And so teasing that apart can take some time for Mm -hmm. sure.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to highlight that you said, going back to one of the first things you said um, about, you know, one of the challenges being just like, being heard and even getting to the point that you're getting assessments and in with the right um, doctors, therapists, whoever else you need to see, neuropsychologists, et cetera. And then we briefly touched on functioning. And my thought was like, well, if you keep getting, and I know you have your own experience with this on the medical side, like pushed aside and basically like delaying care, that's going to impact your function, whether it's, Mm -hmm. if it's a physical health disorder, it gets worse over time, or you are now developing like hopelessness that you're ever going to get help further impacting your mental health.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm thinking in the, in the VA too, there were, I loved the clients in the VA. There were a lot of things I liked about the VA. There were a lot of aspects that were not great. Particularly at the VA that I was working at, and so what would happen, and again because there's systemic issues, people are, and I was in a general mental health clinic, so we got a little bit of everything. And so for obvious reasons, I loved working in this clinic mm-hmm. because you see all the things. And so what would happen is someone had been shuffled around multiple times for different reasons. It could be staff turnover, it could be they requested a new provider, it could have been a bunch of other things. So they come in, and there is a CVS receipt length list of diagnoses that some of them are just completely incompatible. That wouldn't make any sense. And also, like, what? Like, I mentioned it's not uncommon to have multiple diagnoses, but when they're coming in with like six, that's possible. But are we getting at the root of Mm -hmm. the actual? issue here? Are we just like meaninglessly kind of checking off the box? I understand it's challenging that the bill for insurance, but that's also a challenge is they're just getting slapped on a diagnosis and it's not really being explained to them or there isn't that exploration or assessment at all either. So there's that piece as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And we could go on and talk about people getting labeled and slapped on with like multiple diagnoses as in like six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Oh or people that carry the diagnoses that like are literally childhood diagnoses that don't apply anymore. Like mm-hmm. the amount of like 10 year olds I've seen with global developmental delay. I'm like, at this point <laughs> you have something else. Like, why is this still <laughs> listed? But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, so we talked a lot about challenges for the patient. Um, what are challenges for clinicians? working with patients with multiple diagnoses.
1: Okay. So I wish I had a, a soap box, a literal soapbox that I could pull out here that I could step on somewhat because I'm five, three, and I just really want to make that point clear. So there are lots of challenges. I think the big one is that we're not trained really well in conceptualization kind of going back to I was going to use the same analogy the puzzle pieces if we think about the client in front of us is a jigsaw puzzle and knowing that I'm probably never going to have all the pieces of the puzzle but can I find enough pieces to where I could maybe guess what the picture of this jigsaw puzzle is mm-hmm. and we're we're not taught that piece and so what are the implications of that well it's difficult to then fully understand in general, what is the function of what's going on? What is the underlying root? We're kind of grasping at tree branches or leaves, but we're not seeing like what's actually going on underground. And so that leads to potentially these meaningless (laughs) kind of meaningless diagnoses or labels being slapped Mm -hmm. on and hoping that that's just going to capture the full experience and it's not necessarily meaningful at that point. So that's the big piece is we don't really get that type of training. And for me personally, I did get really great training in my master's program about a lot of this, but there was still a lot missing. And so Mm -hmm. I was very anti-psychodynamic before like before. And I just thought you that's really gross. And then I just, I realized that there was this huge gap in, like, I needed a richer source of being able to understand people's experiences mm-hmm. and to psychodynamics credit. And I want to emphasize, this is like new age psychodynamic. Okay. For people not, <laughs> not Freudian. Um, we I mean, yes, there's important contributions, but There are a lot of like richer understandings of, Mm -hmm. of people in general that also are not necessarily pathologizing. That was the other piece too. Yeah. So we're not getting the training on that. We're also not getting, it's really hard to teach people, including therapists to pick up on really subtle cues or how to articulate it. Like I've been consulted for assessments where it's a personality disorder assessment and you know, they'll call me and they'll say, okay, this person creeped me out. Okay. Back up. Like what exactly was going on? Like, what did you pick up on that let you know? Cause then if you can backtrack further and further and further, that's going to help you maybe pick up some jigsaw puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. Or I think this person is exaggerating but I don't know what exactly I'm picking up on mm-hmm. or their affect kind of subtly doesn't match. Basically their facial expressions on their face are not matching what they're telling me. Like the the level of emotions based on the content that they're telling me somehow doesn't match. So there's like all these pieces together that we just don't get really in-depth training for. And also the way that our industry is now with insurance and a lot of the workplaces we're in that's not prioritized. And yeah. so that, of course, then leads back to our training, which, by the way, a lot of it is done by professors that haven't seen clients in like a decade. So how mm-hmm. are they going to train us to do that when they probably don't know or don't remember how to do it themselves? Yeah. So that's a huge, a huge piece. So um, I think that that is where a huge component of that comes from, because if we could address that piece, the rest of it could really be helped along the way if we go from conceptualization again putting puzzle pieces together then potentially a diagnosis if that's appropriate seems Mm -hmm. to fit it's helpful for the client then that would guide whatever the treatment is but we we get stuck right at the beginning across the board this is any mental health field that's where we get stuck and so that can also lead to these issues along the line and again that is reinforced by number one the training that we're in and also. The reality of the industry that we're in. Mm-hmm. So it's was a very long one. to
0: answer. <laughs> no, I loved it. And as you were talking, um, especially when you're like, you know, I feel like they're exaggerating, but I'm not really sure why or what about, or kind of like, you didn't say this word, but like, there's like gut feelings of like, yes. something's off because going back to the patient I mentioned earlier that I would label complex, but like treatment wise, it was actually pretty clear cut. Like I had this gut feeling, And I told different, various team members about something. And I was like, I literally have no evidence for this at all. So this is not going in any documentation, but like, this is my gut feeling. And I was like, but that's literally based on a gut feeling. Like there's no clinical indication of this and like, it will need further exploration. And unfortunately, like you said, how our system is. Structured currently. Like we need a diagnosis after the first session. We can't just go off a gut feeling.
1: <laughs> That's mm-hmm. not
0: evidence based.
1: <laughs> right, right. And I would also argue that we're picking up on something. We just don't know what exactly what it is. We just don't know what it is. And we don't, maybe we don't have the language to articulate what exactly that is. Like I'm thinking back to my time in corrections, very long story short. I've been meeting with this client and it was one of those where, like, as soon as he walked in the room, the hair on the back of my neck stood up like, Mm -hmm. yeah. And he had been there for like a really violent crime for prison. So he had caught charges while he was in prison that he already was in there for violent charges, was facing charges for what he did in prison, which was very violent, horrific. And so I was meeting with him and it's again, like hindsight, you're able to kind of backtrack after the fact, but it helped me later. It helped me like really take time. Thankfully I had supervisors that helped me kind of like harness that a little bit because what happened was he exposed himself in session to me and the cameras couldn't see it. And I didn't realize until that point I had gotten played. And it wasn't until I met with the student. I'm like, how did this happen? It was so subtle. I thought maybe it was accidental and it was so subtle. And there was like a huge desk between us, enormous desk, because it was technically an interrogation room. And um, so my supervisor, who is actually, by the way, pure behaviorist, I was kind of impressed by this. And she goes, cause I'm like questioning, did I even see what I thought that I mm-hmm. saw? And I stayed super calm as I do in crisis situations, which legitimately probably kept me alive in that situation because he was looking for a fear response. And she asked me when you went to slide him the worksheet that he was supposed to be working on, did he grab it? And that's when I knew, and it was confirmed here. He admitted it No because he wanted me to lean all the way over to the desk. And so it's like these small, again, like these very, I know it's like a really intense example, but like these, that was like a pivotal moment in my training that there was something that mm-hmm. I picked up on, but I, I, I overruled that in my mind. I think they're particularly if you're women, if you're a marginalized groups, you may second guess yourself. And again, it's not considered quote evidence-based. I would argue that There's something that we're picking up on. We just, again, we need the time and space and encouragement Mm -hmm. to be able to explore that and then articulate it. So
0: that's my soapbox. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, I love that. And that's a good lead in to the next thing I wanted to ask you. Um, And the way I'm going to word it, I don't know if it actually will be answerable. If that's a word, I don't think that's a word, but like (laughs) in your experience, like what is the best approach clinicians can take when working with? individuals who carry multiple diagnoses.
1: Yeah. So if, if the person would benefit and could afford an assessment, whatever that would look like, like a full psychological assessment, mm-hmm. that would be great. Of course, if there are medical things going on, we need to try to address those first before there's an assessment, but an assessment would be in an ideal world. Everyone should maybe get, if they're coming into our offices, they should get one. So ideally, that's the case. And of course, then that assessment would be done by someone that's not the therapist, of course. So because there's that conflict of interest and otherwise, I think the biggest thing is really trying to get at like, what's the function of the behavior? If we take impulsivity, for example, something that pops up in a lot of different diagnoses, disorders that we may see, phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, that looks, there are very different reasons why the impulsivity would be happening in ADHD versus borderline personality Mm -hmm. disorder versus bipolar disorder. So with ADHD, there's like a strong neurochemical component here that could be playing a role. It also could be driven by physical inability to kind of sit still something like that with bipolar disorder. We often see it if there's hypomania or mania with borderline personality disorder, it could serve as a function because there are a lot of big emotions that are difficult to sit with or maybe it's a reaction to feeling like you're being abandoned or rejected in some way and so if we spend more time less on the diagnoses but more on what's causing the different things going on that will help lead us to a diagnosis that's going to be imperfect there's a lot mm-hmm. of flaws with the way that we diagnose but is there a shorthand way to kind of describe what's going on? I I kind of describe it similarly to like police investigators, instead of trying to fit the evidence to a theory I already have, I want to fit, like basically do the opposite. Mm -hmm. I want to take it, you know, an open mind to all the evidence that I have. And then almost like a true crime, like who done it (laughs) and then try to develop A theory based on that instead of already having in my mind these like boxes that I think people will quickly fit into, Mm -hmm. which again requires time and an effort that a lot of therapists don't necessarily have, um, which is in the training they may not have. So I've done a lot of trainings on this, um, including with like psychiatric residents about legitimately how do we go about doing a better job with. Mm -hmm. The puzzle piece part or conceptualization whatever you want to call it because yeah. across the board we just we get shit training on that and then if we add cultural components the research across the board says we just number one you need strong conceptualization skills in general which we don't have and then you also would have to have really good ways to like incorporate those cultural components mm-hmm. that are probably playing a role like for example if we think about I don't know, just like existing since 2020 and especially in 2022, how much of that is playing a role into what's happening right now? Is that actually a disorder, you know, like mm-hmm. all these different aspects as well. So, um, and of course, paying attention to our own biases uh, that are at play, picking up on all the different aspects. Like for example, the way that they're interacting with me in a room is probably how they interact with other people? What reactions am I having? Am I feeling frustrated with this person? Is it the opposite, which I'm experiencing right now where I'm like, Oh, I'd be like really good friends with this person in real life. That's harder counter-transference or reactions to manage. (laughs) So it's, it's really that piece. We need better training in academia, um, and our programs. And if our professors are not going to do that, then we at least we at least need supervisors to give us like more readings. There are tons, thankfully, like really great articles on conceptualizations like ADHD, for example, has been exploding because mm-hmm. the how we've named it and the way we viewed it. We have a fuller picture now, a bigger picture that doesn't fit necessarily that diagnosis as well, or that's not the full picture. So there are a lot of articles on that. There are many books. So it. It needs to be a focus on what exactly is driving everything going on right now. And then we can worry about what label are we going to slap on there? And then we can worry about the treatment.
0: Yeah, no, no. I love that because, and this is just how I work and obviously need to have diagnoses for insurance purposes, but like my kind of conceptualization is going back to like the CVS length list of diagnoses what 1 2 like or mm-hmm. whatever i don't limit myself to that diagnoses because we have to can explain this yeah. presentation because i am sure there are plenty of people that meet criteria for generalized anxiety disorder social anxiety disorder panic disorder all all of the anxiety disorders and does all of it also just fall under the category of uh anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, or like when I have individuals that come to me and it's like, "Oh, I think I might have ADHD." Well, why do you have that? Oh, I have difficulty concentrating. Okay, well, we know you have anxiety, depression. That can also impact your ability to concentrate. So let's look at kind of like you were talking about the impulsivity in ADHD is very different than the impulse. So let's kind of look at the function or the presentation of this inability um, to concentrate. Um, But like you've been saying over and over again, unfortunately, this takes a lot of time and not all of us have time because of how things are structured. And also, like you said, since surviving since 2020, more people need mental health services than ever. Um, So we're trying to fit as many people in as possible. Seeing client after client. Yeah. Limited by insurance. Oh, you have Mm -hmm. six sessions to, Uh, figure out what's going on with this individual and treat it and make them all better. (laughs) Like it's
1: just impossible. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild trying to make space for that. So yeah, unfortunately it it would require admin time or or time on your own or maybe additional trainings. Maybe we could fit that in continuing education somehow Mm -hmm. trying to figure out a way to do that myself. I don't really know how that would work. But a lot of reading and then trying to apply that, of course, to what that actually looks like yeah, in real life when we know that we're strained, especially right now with really long wait lists yep. and, you know, trying to make sense of make sense of all of that. But that is probably the biggest challenge that I've seen and why I take. These clients, too. And and in addition to that, there can be a lot of frustration among the clinicians. And so, navigating that piece, we also don't, I think we do a better job when we're in school, but then when we're in real life, especially right now, when we're feeling burnt out, Mm -hmm. we're much more prone to having emotional reactions toward clients based on our own biases at play. And we're not as great about keeping that in check because we're exhausted. And so, that can impact um, our client's experience of what's going on. It can also potentially allow us to miss things. Like, are we filtering things that are not fitting again? Do I have the theory before I have the evidence, like the full evidence of what's going on here? Um, Mm -hmm. and then that, that dynamic as well. And the way that like, does that affect treatment? Um, Mm -hmm. I see that a lot, like obviously borderline personality disorder has a ton of negative biases by therapists. I hear it all the time. It makes me rage and also chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, because I have that and I can hide it, people feel bolder because they don't think that I have it. So of course they think that they can say it out loud in front of me. Um, and so me hearing that piece and because sitting with chronic pain, for example, or BPD or like all these other things requires a lot of empathy and also mm-hmm. recognizing, okay, well, what am I bringing to this dynamic? And also understanding if they're interacting with me this way, are they interacting with other people this way? And is that contributing to some of the issues? Yeah,
0: most definitely. So as we are wrapping up, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you want to touch on related to everything we've already discussed?
1: <laughs> I... I don't think so. I think, yeah, that's the biggest piece is recognizing almost a trickle down Mm -hmm. effect of we're having these systemic pressures and also it starts from training and that's reinforced by some of the things that we're facing, but it has a real effect on our clients and does a pretty big disservice so I wish I could think of some books off the top of my head or articles. Maybe I should have been prepared, but I can message you some for suggestions for people to read. But I really Definitely. appreciate, yeah, I really appreciate this topic because it's so important. And every time therapists are like, "You need a niche," and I'm like, "Is this a niche?" I don't. I mean, it, this is like the thing that I end up seeing the most of. But like, is it a niche? Like, it feels pretty broad to me.
0: But I mean, I feel like it can be, especially one of the first things you said are like that you tend to attract the clients that a lot of other people don't want to work with or couldn't work with because they felt like they weren't confident enough. So yeah, I mean, multiple diagnoses, complex presenting patients. yeah, So
1: like multiple, basically like multiple things happening, like real life. It's reflecting (laughs) real life right now, I think.
0: you just work with real life people. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So Dr. Mack, the last question I like to ask all my guests is where can people connect with you?
1: Okay. Yeah. So I also have my own podcast. It's revealing the ivory tower podcast. That is my handle on Instagram and also on Twitter So there is some spice involved in there. Also some educational topics on on a variety of different things. So that's where people can find me in case um, they want to learn about a lot of different topics. Also, if they like therapy memes, I also post those too. So there's there's just a variety of things because I like to switch it up. And your spicy Thursdays is my favorite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it.
1: I know you like last week's.
0: No, I, oh, I like. I remember when I first saw Spicy Thursday. I was like, "Is this in every Thursday?" And you were like, "Yes." I was like, "I'm here for it." So, um, well, I will link all of your podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, in the show notes, and then if you do send me any resources, I can um, link those as well. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I know we could talk for. Hours upon hours longer (laughs) about this and so many other things, but I really appreciate you taking time and coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a really important topic that's not discussed enough, I think.
0: So, thank you all, the listeners, for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.